Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We've got another great podcast for you here from Optus Sport. David Weiner with you, joined by John Aloisi, Michael Bridges, and Richard Bayless, fresh from the Super Cup couch this morning where Liverpool took down Chelsea on penalties. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the Premier League. We've got City and Spurs on the weekend where we'll talk about that in depth. All the action from the European leagues that kick off this weekend. And we've got John Aloisi's view on some of the latest developments in Australian football. Let's rip right into it. Another European trophy for Liverpool. An interesting and productive day for Chelsea, but no trophy. But for the fans, that was one hell of a morning, Rich. Had a great time. The UEFA Super Cup maybe doesn't have the same pressure as a Champions League final or Europa League final. And as such, we got a better game of football. I'm sure there are other reasons that it was potentially more exciting than those finals a couple of months ago. But Liverpool, they just keep keep winning in Europe, don't they? I wonder if you're a Liverpool fan, would you trade in the Super Cup and the Champions League and all these European trophies just to get the Premier League once? Oh, definitely trade the Super Cup. They'd trade anything for the Super Cup, <laughs> for the Premier League. The Super Cup would be the first one they would kick into touch. But it, like Rich said, it was a very, very exciting, entertaining game. And comparing the Champions League last season, the final was a bit, it was very drab. That was a great, great moment and a great match. And great to see Lampard actually bouncing back after the um, the 4-0 defeat at United, putting in a very good performance. Um, his team did. And you know, getting rid of some of the critics that had written him off after game one. Yeah, we talk about Lampard. The credit goes to the players for believing still in Lampard in, in the way he wants to play his football and the way he's setting up his team and going about it. It did make a big difference, though, Giroud and, and Kante playing. Pulisic showed signs of that. what he's going to bring to Chelsea. It's exciting. He's quick. He can score goals. We saw that he, he put away a chance that uh, got caught offside, marginally offside. But um, very impressed with Chelsea this morning. I was impressed with them on the weekend, especially those first 45 minutes against Manchester United. I thought that they should have gone in at half-time at least up. The last half hour let themselves down a little bit because they got caught on the counter. But Chelsea will be decent side this year. Well, Bridget, you put yourself in Lampard's shoes as, as a coach and the challenge that he would have had with a torrent of criticism, particularly with Jose Mourinho leading it after the weekend's game. He turned it around dramatically in the space of less than a week. What do you think he, he, he did right? It wasn't like Mourinho to put the spanner into his old team, yeah. was it? Again? Incredible. Incredible. Um, what he's got to do as Frank Lampard as manager, he's got to sell that dressing room a positive spin on that result. And I think that he's going to learn that as he goes on. You've got to go in and look at the positives. Like I say, it was the shots, the amount of final third entries that they had, the possession. They, they, they outdid Manchester United in every, every avenue in that game, apart from the one that counts, where you get the three points. Early on, there was chances coming across the box. Abraham didn't get in the end of them. On another day, they could have gone 2-0 up. He's hit the post. There was a few across the box. So there's, there was positive spins. You've got to sell that. Your players, John will tell you when you're coaching, how you sell that, your, your vision and your positivity to get the players on site, to buy into the belief... And they had to go into this game with a positive attitude and a fresh start to go and express yourself. And they had a better lineup. I believe it was a stronger team that they played. 
and they went out and they performed and the fans would have been absolutely delighted at what they witnessed against United if you're looking at it from a different aspect. You're not just looking at that one result. Because I know a few of my mates that were talking about it, saying they were disgrace and how bad they were and Lampard's on his, on his way out. Well, look at the game. Look at it properly. See how they are trying to play and what they're about. And this proved again that Lampard has got something that he can deliver for Chelsea. John, you were known as one of the better-dressed men on the sideline, certainly in the A-League in your time then. How much do you think the fact that Lampard went from the open-collar shirt and suit combination to the tracksuit for the UEFA Super Cup final, how much did that play into the fact that Chelsea played better? It made a hell of a difference. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say is he's still not sure about uh, his philosophy. Does he want to wear a suit, Bridgie, or does he want to wear a tracksuit? And uh, a new coach... I think that he's still feeling his way into it. Were you always a suit man or did you, did you go for the tracksuit once or twice? Only pre-season they went for tracksuit. I actually went for a tracksuit over in Thailand in Bangkok because we played against the, um, in the Champions League over there, ACL, and it was steaming hot and I couldn't wear a suit. <laughs> so I wore the tracksuit. That was the only time I ever wore a tracksuit other than pre-season. No sweat patches. There were plenty of sweat <laughs> patches. Don't worry about that. But what I will say about Lampard is I think even after the game against Manchester United, the way he conducted himself, the way he held himself in the presser, even when they said about Mourinho, he said, look, pundits have got their view. Um, it's something that I'm not going to look at. I know what I'm doing. I know what we're trying to do as a football club, as a team. And I think that, that that's how he sells it to the players. It's not only in the changing room. It's always, um, you know, that's one thing. But it's also how you sell yourself in the press conference because players look at it, fans look at it, uh, opposition coaches look at it. I think he's going to be a good manager. I hope they give him time because really what he's been left with, he, he lost Hazard, one of the best players in the world that scored the majority of goals and set up a load of goals, uh, not only last season but in previous seasons. Plus they weren't able to go sign anyone in the off season, So he's going to bring through young players and he's also still got some experienced players. Give him time. I think he will do a good job there. You think it would actually be a good sign as well that he's played N'Golo Kante in that more advanced role where it would have been an easy win in the eyes of the fans and the public to just come in and go, you know what, he's one of the best holding midfielders in the world. He's at number six and that's where he stays. He played him, played him a little bit more defensive at the weekend, but the fact that he was able to go this week in the Super Cup, no, I want to play him more advanced. He's not, he's not scared about what people might say about that when the criticism was pretty heavy on Sari last year for just that. And I mean, Kante was... Unbelievable in that game, man of the match for mine. Looks like he could play number eight every day of the week. That's why you get paid the big money to make the big decisions. And Frank Lampard has just proven in that moment he's got big balls for this job. He's prepared to put his head on the line and make the decision, not just to appease the fans. He's going to go and do it for Frank Lampard and what he feels is best for Chelsea. And I think it's great. I'll tell you what, you talk about uh, early things that need to be shown for Chelsea fans. And Pulisic's starting debut would have been a huge relief because everyone's saying, how do you replace Hazard's goals, Hazard's contribution? You physically can't. No one is going to match that. But today, created a couple of chances. Uh, had a beautiful goal disallowed as well, rightly so, but he was, was t- beautifully taken. That was a very, very, very big first first start for him. It was. Look, he assisted the goal with Giroud. The positions that he found himself in, not only was he running in behind and actually creating uh, opportunities off of Giroud, but he was also linking up well. So getting in between the lines in the midfield and, and, and able to turn and face forward and play the strikers in, I thought that he, he was exceptional for his debut. 
But let's not put too much pressure on him. Let's not say that he's a replacement for Hazard because he's definitely not. He's still a 20-year-old, still learning the game. And this is where the management of Frank Lampard is going to be important, not only with Pulisic, but also with Abraham this morning after missing that clear chance, after not scoring against Manchester United, after missing the the penalty that was the the one that actually lost the game for him. This is where his man management skills are going to come into play. Dave, I really rate your trolling skills. The fact that Liverpool have won this trophy and we've gone and spoken about Chelsea for 10 minutes, <laughs> rate it. It's got nothing to do with me. It's just what everyone wants to talk about. But speaking of Liverpool, the, I just I just saw a clip of uh, Jurgen Klopp after the game doing the rounds where he's gone. He's given it the big Adrian from Rocky. I've we'll hopefully maybe replace that with a bit of an audio grab instead. But what a what a moment for him when you think about his last start in any game period was in the League Cup against Wimbledon, a loss for West Ham. There was a big conversation about Allison the impact he has, the presence he has. For first impressions, this is also massive for Adrian and massive for Liverpool, massive for Klopp to be able to go, yeah, that Alisson story, we're going to put that to bed now as quickly as possible. Yeah, definitely. That's the golden glove man from last season. He came in and made a huge, huge impact. He's, he, I think they'd had him the year before in goal. They might have got back-to-back Champions Leagues. And for this man, Adrian, to come in and put in a performance that he has put in and save the penalty, that's why Klopp ran over not for that moment, it's the six to seven weeks ahead. Mm. What they've got to look forward to, he has got to get that player as confident as possible. And it wasn't just Klopp. Klopp beat some of his own players that had played the extra time, by the way. That was a good turn of pace by the big man, wasn't it? <laughs> he looks like he's had a good off-season as well, <laughs> he, he Klopp. Would, oh, yeah. He's put a few clem on, yeah. <laughs> a fair bit of inertia. <laughs> but it wasn't just Klopp around. The, one play, the, the whole team were there. Now, that was a big, big moment, and that was a massive statement to see. You know what it is? We're going to put full faith in you for the next two months, if that's how long. And competition now. Does Alisson just walk straight back in if he has eight clean sheets going on? It's incredible. He definitely will walk back in, yeah. no matter how well Adrian does. Because, look, we can't underestimate it. It's, it's one game. He played brilliantly well. Um, but they still gave up a lot of opportunities, Liverpool. And, and I still think that defensively they're not at where they were last season, because defensively they were superb last season. We talk about their attacking flair and their front three and their midfield, but defensively, Van Dijk and Alisson made the difference. That's why they were able to get to the Champions League final winner, come within one point of uh, challenging Manchester City. Whereas this year, this is important. These next two months, if their goalkeeper doesn't stand up like an Alisson, they could actually lose the title race already. Because you were really worried today watching that game about the high line of Liverpool's defence, weren't you? Yeah, there's one thing about playing a high line, and they did it well most of the time, but you saw against the, in the Community Shield against Manchester City, when Sterling got left 1v1, it was the same line. It's when there's no pressure on the ball in midfield and they're still holding their line when there's either a, a wide player, a winger actually making a forward run or a striker making a forward run. And you see when Abraham, when he came on, he still caused them problems because they were playing that line and he got in a couple of times. He got 1v1. One, one one. They got in behind again for the chance that Abraham put past the post. So they are actually struggling with that line at the moment. But that might be a little bit that they haven't played a lot together in pre-season because their pre-season was very interrupted with the off-season that they had. But um, that's not only Liverpool, that's the majority of the major clubs. Norwich were tremendous in that game when you talk about they had plenty of space in midfield. 
and the signs were that you talk about that the pressure might not have been there. But the impact of Allison, so everyone hails Van Dyke and rightly so, potential Ballon d'Or winner. But the Liverpool conceded 22 goals last year. On that expected goals stat conceded that people take measurements by for what your rea- defence was really looking like. Genuine chances conceded. It's 29. He had a massive presence and a tangible impact. As a coach, John, how big is it knowing that you've got that presence? And, or even as a player, knowing that you've got a big man in the sticks that you, will bail you out every single time? As a player, I hated goalkeepers. <laughs> as a coach, I realised how important they were. They are probably, if you know, everyone talks about the, the attacking players, the ones that really make the difference. But there's, there's no team in the world that can win something with a poor goalkeeper. That's why the best teams in the world go spend that money on goalkeepers because not only the saves that they pull off, I think actually better goalkeepers make less saves because the actual uh, coaching that they have out there, organising their defence, the presence that they have with their players around them, defenders feel more confident. They will hold that line a little bit more when your goalkeeper's able to actually sweep and, and cover that through ball. And I think that's uh, what a good goalkeeper does do. It's funny, John. Last night, I was coaching the Lambton Jaffa's first grade team. We're playing a shadow game against the 20s. Now, the 20s, bless them, have had a really, really bad season. I got the young goalkeeper last night, Nathan, to come and stand alongside me and just observe our first-team goalkeeper, or second choice, because Ben Kennedy's in goal now for the, for the Jaffas, got to get them in. But the second choice, Swanee, was there. He's talking, and the way he conducts, I just said to the young lad, listen to the, how vocal this senior player is and what he does to the back four and how it's not just about what you do and where you save. So it's exactly what you were talking about. It was an education lesson just for him to observe and realise, because they see the full pitch. They see the big picture of the field, and it does, it does my job. Uh, Ten times, the, you know, I've got to talk less because he is communicating with the back four. Well, goalkeepers have changed so much over the years. It's not only with their actual uh, playing out from the back, it's also their distances from where their back four are. Now, it, not only are they sweeping, they're able to communicate a lot better because their distance is a lot closer. And, and that's where goalkeepers, uh, a lot of coaches will include them in training. Um, in their possession gains because they're actually getting a feel of the ball. They're actually coaching a lot out there. And um, and that's where a, a goalkeeper does make a big difference. It, 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 it actually it helps your defence that um, because they can't see always what's behind them. A goalkeeper can see everything, like you said. Jesus, Rich, in the first bit of the podcast, we talked about Chelsea and goalkeepers. This is absolutely disgraceful steering of the show. I can't believe how quickly we went from Chelsea to the Lambton Jaffers. That's the level. <laughs> that, you know, people are talking about Chelsea having a bad season, but I didn't realise it was going to be quite that bad. But just I want to know, who was, the, uh, who was the biggest presence that you guys played with or against in that sense who had that influence over a team that, that you were involved in? Well, uh, I will say that um, Mark Swartzer had a presence, um, and that was mainly because of the, you know how many great saves he made for Australia. But I will say that the, the player that I played with the most... <laughs> Don't tell him that, for God's well, sake. I'm sure that Swartzy will be uh, sending me a text saying thank you. <sighs> but the, the player that I played with, and only for a short period, and I think that if he had the same professionalism as a Mark Swartzer, he would have been the best goalkeeper in the world, was Mark Bosnich. And not only did he have a presence when he was on the pitch, when he was off the pitch, you realised, and not because of his laugh, because of his stature, the way he actually walked into a room, everyone knew Mark Bosnich was there. And when he was at the top of his game, and I'm talking just before he went to Manchester United and when he was at Aston Villa back in 97 with the, the Socceroos, we played against Brazil in the Confederations Cup. We drew nil against the likes of Romario, Ronaldo, Babeto, and it was thanks to Mark Bosnich. 
I remember uh, Roberto Carlos hit a free kick from about 30 metres and it just went past the Pots. And Mark Bosnich ends up going to Roberto Carlos and waving his finger, you don't beat me from there. And that's the presence he had and that's the confidence that he gave everyone around him. And they've got to be a little bit strange and different goalkeepers, haven't they? They're all strange. They're all strange. They're all, <laughs> they're all, a, they're all a bit out there. I've got to put it down. Mine was Shea Given. He yep. came from Blackburn Rovers on loan to Sunderland and he was one of the main reasons we got promoted that season because he came in on loan and you know, he wasn't big in stature, but what he was, he was so vocal. He organised our back four. He was a leader on the field and he was a leader off the field at such a young age and I learned so much off Shea Given. Um, because he was my roommate, and like you say, when they when they're vocal and they understand the game, it's an absolute blessing. Yeah, interesting stuff, and we'll see over the next few weeks what impact Allison's absence does have, and whether Adrian can almost sustain that for for that almost ride the high for a couple of weeks and, and get out of it. Cost me my free transfer this week in fantasy football, having to take him out. Uh, Allison, mm. yeah, same, exactly. Well, guys, um, how good was it to have the Premier League back over the weekend? What was your what did you enjoy most out of it? Oh, probably just the fact that it, it was back. I thought quite a few of the games were thoroughly entertaining. Uh, the fact that City absolutely walked the game against West Ham didn't hide the fact or, or couldn't conceal the fact that it was still a really good game. And West Ham started quite well, you know, nice sunny day in London. What better way to start a Saturday, you know, after a lot of goals on Friday night than we saw Tottenham, you know, given a real test. I like the fact that the three promoted teams all had a crack in their v- various ways. I mean, Norwich... It's a really good indication. They, they might have looked at the Liverpool game and thought, you know what, this is a bit of a free swing. It, it's one of the two hardest match days they'll have all year. We're going to play our football, and I think Daniel Farker will do that. But Aston Villa too, I think they, they won't compromise in what they want to do under Dean Smith. But then you look at Sheffield United, the fact that they were the only ones to get a point probably points to the fact that they are the best defensively out of the three and they'll be a little bit more pragmatic. So it's always fascinating to see how they get on, and I think we've got a really good indication of where they differ. Yeah, right. And Bridgie, what from the what did you learn the most from the weekend? What do you think sets the tone for the rest of the season? Sets the tone? Who's going to catch City? It's as simple as that. After watching them against West Ham, I was absolutely blown away at the standard of football that they produced. The the void of Rodri coming into that midfield. And you know, I've seen a big, big thing this week on social media about the manager, Pellegrini, complained about the tactics. They were a little bit aggressive. That's football. That is a tactic to use. When they've got the ball, they're fantastic. When they don't, they close down. And when you close down at pace, you're going to catch players. You're going to put them off guard. And I just think they have got it absolutely all spot on this season. Is that a a sign, though, of the VAR age? That now that managers can maybe point out, well, this team does that. We see it in other sports that once you almost point out to the referee that, hey, you've got to keep an eye on this team, they do that. And now with the VAR, we saw its intervention across the weekend. Is Pellegrini being tactical there? Because he'd know it's football and it's, it's think, a physical game. I think uh, Pochettino rang up Pellegrini before and, and said, can you please do this because uh, we need the referees to pick up on it. We got them next week. It is a tactic. And and the way that they foul is in the opposition half. So it's very hard for a referee to actually give them a yellow card because as soon as they lose the ball, they want to regain it straight away. So their reaction is good. And if they don't win it, it's a little foul. Stop the game. Get behind the ball and let's set up again to go press. And that, that is a tactic. They do it really well. The best teams in the world do it well. And um, and th- th- that's part of Guardiola's style of play. Now, of course, Pellegrini's going to say something because he wants them to pick up on it. But uh, It I'm was sure talked th- about last season as well. Well, uh, the, the, obviously the referees haven't picked <laughs> up on it. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It's not a new thing necessarily, but with VAR, I mean... VAR can't do much about that. Not, not if it's in the... 
the forward half, obviously. But if it's in referees' minds that Manchester City are a dirty team or if that's the reputation they start to get and the 50-50 calls go against them, I, I just wonder what impact you know, VAR might have that we're not necessarily seeing just yet. I just feel like it's one of those ones where when it starts to get a bit of momentum in the press... Uh, not the president on the field, as in the media, it's something that people are going to start scrutinising a little bit more. And it's almost like the 19 other managers have gone together to go, we've got to find something to bring them down with. And this is one of them. Even Rodri, in his first game, straight away, seamlessly picking up those fouls. Even Jack Wilshere said, uh, you know, I was copying it all over the park. Yeah, well, look... Of course, the, the opposition uh, coaches are going to say something because they want to stop Manchester City because it'll become a boring league, um, especially for the neutral and, and the coaches that they can't actually find a way to beat them. And um, and Pellegrini would have been frustrated because they just lost 5-0 and they actually had a decent first half. City weren't really on top of them that much. They, they scored a good goal, but uh, West Ham would have come away thinking, we're not even close. We lost 5-0 and, and, and we, we played well. I heard a good one come from Peter Reid many years ago. We got in the Premier League. We're playing Chelsea. First game of the season. His tactics were go down there, Stamford Bridge. Can somebody get hold of Zola? You know, they've got Gus Poyer. Can we just get into them and physically kick the hell out of them? <laughs> half time. Why he's still not a manager? <laughs> we're 3-0 down at half time. You know what the lads were saying? The gaffer's going, can we not get, get into them and start kicking them? Gaffer, we can't even get close to them <laughs> to try and kick them. And that is the challenge managers have now and players have against City because they are so dynamic with and without the ball. Well, this is where it's interesting. How do you set up against the Manchester City? Because if you do sit off of them, and they did struggle the first year under Guardiola, when teams sat off of them, they still found it hard to break them down. Yeah. And he mentioned when teams played five at the back, they found it hard to get space in behind. Now teams sit off of them. They, they pick them off. They, they, they find it easy. If you do press them, they've still got players that can go direct and they got players that can go direct. We saw against Liverpool in the, in the Charity Shield that they went direct over uh, the fullback's head from the goalkeeper. And so they've got that ability not only just to play short and play out, but also to beat lines and go direct. It's not going direct a long ball. It's actually a through ball. It's a smart ball. So as a, as a coach, you need to think, well, do I go press them? When do I go press them? When's the best time? And when do I sit off and, and, and condense the space so they can't get in behind or can't get in between the lines in the midfield? What did you make of, um, did you see uh, Yokohama's effort against them in the, in the preseason where Ange Postacoglu actually took it to them? And it was a fascinating matchup. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Look, we have to also mention that the Yokohama were uh, are deep into their season, so they're physically a lot sharper, a lot fresher. Uh, Manchester City are still looking at, um, you know, they're getting their fitness and, and, and they're probably a little bit heavy-legged. But what um, Raheem Sterling did say, that it was probably the best team he's come up against in playing out from the back. Now, that says something, doesn't it? That says something for the way Ange plays. Um, and, and I know that the way that um, Ange sets up his teams is they can play so quick. And when they do beat a line, they go forward quickly. And I think when you're coming up against the City and the City are pressing because they like to press, if you beat that first line, go forward. Try and catch them out as quick as possible. And if you can do that, then you will create chances against them. Because they're another side that no one really talks about their defensive display, but they concede very few mm. goals. So, Bridgie, what's Mitro Pochettino do 2.30am Sunday morning Australian time in a match that, again, I, we don't want to sound like it's, it's only round two. You don't want to get carried away, but... The league wants Spurs to really push City here and take points off them for the sake of uh, them not running away with it too early. The stats are terrible in favour of Spurs against City. He's got to get up in the morning, he's got to pray, he's got to go to bed the night before, he's got to pray, <laughs> and he's got to pray that on the day 
Harry Kane is on absolute fire and Man City have an absolute shock. It's the only way I can They've say got to have they, more they, chance they, than that, wait, surely. Let's, let's talk about They beat them in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. So they still have something over City. I, I actually think in the actual league game when they did lose, I thought that Spurs actually matched them. I thought Spurs were good against them. Spurs pressed them high. I think the way Spurs have to play is press high. That, that, that's, their, that's their game. That's the way that they actually train. Yeah, they're no, no different though. That's the thing. And they're going to have to go for that same same way again. He changed formations a couple of times last year. He tried two different ones, four at the back. He went with the three, with the wing backs, And it didn't work. Yes, the Champions League did, but I really... After watching them last week, I know Spurs got a good result, three three one win. Um, it yeah, I they just weren't feel great first half though. It's Spurs. No, they, they weren't. It's, well, when Ericsson came, came late on, on, when Ericsson came on, yeah. he made a massive difference. Ericsson, he makes a difference for them. Mm. They can't afford to lose him right now because if they do lose him, they're going to struggle because they haven't really got that player that can feed Kane. You look at Kane in the first half; he was quite hardly touched the ball. In the second half, he got into it when Ericsson came on. You can't buy them players. They are diamonds. Well, you can, but they can't afford them. We can't afford them. Yeah, we can't afford to sell them. So, yeah, it's not looking good for Spurs. Well, you talk about 2.30 a.m. Australian time. I'm really interested to see 1.30 when the teams come out because there's the Ericsson scenario. Does he continue to start him off the bench? You know, does he still want away to the point where Poch won't start him? But also, do we see Sessegnon? Do we see Lucelso? I mean, I thought... And Dombele's impact, the goal was fantastic. You know, what sort of Spurs yeah. do we see emerge? So Sessegnon is underdone still, so I don't think he will uh, start. But um, amazing stat on Ericsson. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, he was on for 26 minutes. Spurs had a league high 31 shots on goal on the weekend. 18 of those came in the 26 minutes he was on. He's almost shown his hand here, the power that he has and influence on the team, particularly with no uh, Son, who's suspended, and Ali, who's also underdone. Bridgie, I've also got a little question for you. How many times in your career did you go to bed and pray and then wake up and pray before a match? And if so, what did you pray? <laughs> yes, I did, Rich. <laughs> and I was when I was with Sunderland, I prayed not to get beat by another 5-1. <laughs> because it's the most humiliating thing in the world. You know you're struggling when you're a coach and you have to pray to get the result. (laughs) Pray that Peter Reid was praying that Kevin Phillips didn't go down, so he had to put Michael Bridges on. And I was praying that Kev did go down, so I got a game. No, I wasn't Kev. I'm giving Spurs more of a chance than you, Bridges. It's actually going to be an incredible matchup over the weekend. Was there anything, looking from that weekend, that you picked out, Johnny, or a player or someone that you think's going to... that's made a statement uh, looking ahead to the season? I think the main players uh, showed their... You, you know, they're still the ones that make the difference. And we, we talked about Kane, we talked about Salah, um, Rashford for me. Um, I, I know that defensively he can let him down a little bit on the, on the left side, but that also... And, and if you, you see one of the goals that uh, Manchester United scored, it's because he was cheating a little bit defensively. As soon as the ball broke down when Maguire won the ball, the first pass out was to Rashford, and they were away. And that really excited me to see the way Manchester United actually countered teams. Now, where we're going to see about Man United is what they're going to be like when teams sit off of them. Have they got the capability to break teams down? And and 
that's still a massive question mark for me. And 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 this week we might see so it against Wolves. That's what's going to challenge them this week against Wolves, who got dominated by Leicester yet again, found a way to keep another clean sheet. And this is where I'll ch- challenge, not challenge. This is where I'll have a look at United after the next few games, but especially this one against Wolves, as to where where they are at. And you mentioned the guy Rashford, but you mentioned the man that played him the past when he won the ball. The man that stood out for me that first weekend was Maguire. Massive price tag, came in, stats were unbelievable with balls won, headers won, duels won, passing stats. Just announced himself to Old Trafford. And that's Uh, after three days of training there? Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It it must be quite something to be able to walk into a club of that stature, and no offence to the clubs he's played for because he's almost like, you know, I guess moved his way up the ladder in terms of small club to, to big club, but... He's clearly walked in there with so much confidence to be able to, on your league debut at home, in, you know, in front of packed crowd, millions watching around the world against Chelsea, first day of the season, to be so vocal and such a visual leader. And that's what Manchester United have been lacking, arguably since Roy Keane left, or Ferdinand Vinicius. I'll suppose. let you answer that, but my lad, my son, he's only 12, made me laugh. When he saw Harry Maguire in the press conference signing, he said he looks like Rocket, the, the guy Rocket Ralph or whatever he does, the guy that punches all the bricks. With a big head and the big hands, and I just thought, thought it was brilliant because he just looks colossal in like a big unit. But it, it, it does say something for the individual. It, it's never easy to go to a new club and to fit in straight away and to straight away start playing and make a difference and make an impact. And and not only that, he's the world's most expensive defender. So all of a sudden, th- there's that pressure on you. And he played like there was no pressure on him. He played like he had been playing at Manchester United for 10 seasons. So that, that's a big plus. And he's only going to get stronger. And the players around him are going to get stronger because they're going to understand him more. He's going to coach a lot more. He's an actual coach out there. And, and for me, you, you can't, they're hard to find. They are hard to find. When they're actually giving instructions like what the coach wants to do, um, it, it's virtually impossible. Mourinho did come out and say, Mourinho said a lot of negative things on the weekend, but he said one positive thing and then he all turned it into a negative. <laughs> he said that he didn't come. He came a year too late and uh, and he that's how badly he wanted someone like Maguire and that uh, oh, he probably... Because he didn't spend enough money when he was there, did he? <laughs> he butchered his son. I tell you what, it speaks volumes of a performance. And I think on the Optusport social channels, you can see a highlights compilation of Harry Maguire's debut. I don't think I've ever watched a minute and a half of hitters and clearances and interceptions. But the United fans were getting giddy around it. So it's interesting because everyone talks compared to, about <laughs> to Virgil van Dijk and the impact he had there. And everyone's saying van Dijk had an easier job because he had the structure and infrastructure around him. Whereas everyone's assuming that Harry Maguire probably doesn't, to lift United with a Paul Pogba just, you know, prancing around in front of him, it's a big challenge and a big responsibility. Does that take away the pressure a little bit, at least, uh, for Paul Pogba? And and we will see the best of Paul Pogba because now Harry Maguire's behind him. He, he actually feels that he's not carrying the team. There's not uh, there's still speculation whether he's going to stay or he's going to go. If you look at the highlights package of Paul Pogba, you'll think he gave away the ball that many times in the first half and lost the ball, but he was still... A major difference when you talk about the goals that they scored, you know, the, the way he set up the goal for Rashford, uh, his his through ball and and just his energy when he went forward and and you say he's going to get better with someone like Harry Maguire behind him. The biggest cause of the week, and I love it after round one, everyone just jumps to conclusions. You know, Manchester United are back, Lampard's gone, Lampard will regret Louise, Arsenal, are, you know, Arsenal have the most amazing attack with the front three. What are the biggest statements that will hold? through to the end of the season or what's the one we're going to laugh at the most 
Oh, oh, Chelsea going down. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> and, you know, it could be two years in a row, actually, that uh, Lampard goes from managing a championship team because, you know, maybe Derby in the Premier League might poach him back. But they're definitely going down. <laughs> it, it is amazing to see. Like, the headline of just that result, I think, skewed a lot of people, which we've already covered. Mm. It's not that bad for Chelsea. And if people at Chelsea are willing to accept that we're going to see some young players come out and they're going to unearth some stars, you know, your Tamoris and Mounts and Abrahams, etc., you'd probably take a season of struggle. But, you know, I try to temper the whole Manchester City are going to win the thing, but the fact that they didn't get out of second or third gear at most against a very good, I thought, West Ham, you mentioned it, they started pretty well, the Hammers. Ooh, scary. What about for you, Bridgie? My, well, I'm struggling here. <laughs> Go to John, let us have a think. <laughs> the thing that I take away is, um, look, Arsenal weren't great, in, and what we we talk about great, they, they didn't score you know, many goals or create many chances, but they won away from home. That was a struggle for him last year. Um, you know, and the, a clean sheet too. And which a, yeah, and a clean sheet. And, and I think that you know, they've gone about their business very, very smart in, in terms of what they've spent, how they've spent a lot of money. And I think, Emery, this season you'll see a lot of improvement. Can they push a Manchester City? I'm not sure they're quite there yet. I think the only team that can really challenge, and you saw from round one, and we're quick to judge after one round, I still think is Liverpool. And Liverpool need to make sure that they keep their stars on the pitch because Manchester City, if one player's missing, they've got another player to fill his shoes. Another one for me, Dave, I would say arguably the surprise of the opening weekend was Brighton and how easy is not the word, but how much they swatted aside Watford, a side that... Really good and started really well under Javi Grazia last year. And, and Brighton, for a lot of people, predicted to maybe, if not go down, be very close to it. But a young manager in Graham Potter has come in with a philosophy very different to their mm. previous manager. We will obviously keep an eye on them because Aaron Moy's there now with Matty Ryan as well. But they were very good in that 3-0 win over Watford. They played terrific football. They changed their game plan entirely from Chris Uden, who was so reactive and conservative. And Graham Potter had them playing three at the back and, and expressing themselves. That's great news for Aaron Moy. I would imagine, uh, going into a team that loves a manager that wants to play and express himself. Well, that's the reason why they signed Aaron Moy. I don't think a Burnley will go sign an Aaron Moy because they play a little bit different and, and they're probably a little bit more direct and, and physical, whereas Brighton went and signed Aaron Moy because he's going to fit into the, the philosophy of the, the manager. And, you know, l- let's hope that he does get... Um, well, he will. He'll play and he'll play well and let's hope that they have a good season. Bridget, we hope it goes as well as... the. Another instance that we had two Australians at the same club, which you obviously were there for. What is it like having two Aussies just you know amongst the dressing room? And when when what what, what impact does that have? Well, it was great because they work hard and they play hard, and you know <laughs> I had, that's why they embraced themselves into the dressing room culture straight away. And it wasn't just the two boys. I think we had five, six, or seven six. at one point, and yeah. yeah, it was an incredible dressing room atmosphere because the the transition was so so quick to get on the, you know, the kind of culture that, that we are used to in England. And I've noticed that since I came here. It was an easy transition, a beautiful country, lovely people, same culture. And I think their Aussie boys will be settling right in there. And if you, if you find that you get a good blend and you see a good lad in Matty Ryan, he's a great player, they'll have watched, they'll have watched Aaron Moy last season, what he was doing. I think it's a great, great signing. 
Do you think Matty Ryan and Aaron Moy will just go and hang out on Brighton Pier and just, you know, hang their legs over the side and talk about life and what it all means, Johnny? Well, they'll be talking about uh, Western Sydney, how uh, they, they enjoyed living out in Western Sydney. Look, I, I'm sure that they'll they'll be close. It's normal. You, you, you do gravitate to people from your own country. And that's why a lot of managers actually sign not just one player from a certain country. They might sign two or three because it actually makes it easier for them to adapt to playing in that team, in that club. Well, they play at midnight against West Ham on the weekend at home. Their home fans get their first glimpse of that. The round kicks off at 9.30 Eastern with Arsenal against Burnley. Gosh, Burnley were ordinary on the weekend, so a good chance for Arsenal to, to show their attacking instincts at home to kick off the round. Aston Villa against Bournemouth, Everton against Watford, Norwich against Newcastle, and Southampton against Liverpool are the midnight games before that Manchester City Spurs game that we mentioned at 2.30 to round out the evening. Oh, here's a good yarn. The next night kicks off with Sheffield United against Crystal Palace. And the reason why I want to mention that game is the goal-scoring exploits of Billy Sharp, Rich, who he's now scored in all four divisions in England. He's actually, this blew me away, the top scorer in English league football since the turn of the century. Um, you follow the, the football leagues as closely as anyone. Tell us a little bit about this guy. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I don't follow the lower leagues by choice. I feel compelled to do so. And <laughs> the club that I do follow, he did play for at one point, Billy Sharp, uh, Leeds. And he didn't have the greatest record there, but he always had the reputation that he is just a finisher, Barndor Billy. And, you know, he's very much a Sheffield United legend. He's had a couple of stints there. The club is very close to his heart. I think he was Yorkshire born and bred. And it's absolutely no surprise to see him pop up for a side like that because while they'll be defensively based and they can play good football under Chris Wilder, they'll need someone like him to score 20-25 if they're going to stay up. And if anyone can do it, it's him. Well, it's pretty amazing because the coach actually said, you know, one of the criticisms that I got is with my recruitment, can Billy Sharp do it in the Premier League? And here he is after 10 minutes, 88th minute, comes on and does exactly that. What kind of a milestone is it, Bridget, to, to be able to score in four such different divisions? And, and you came... Pretty close to doing that yourself. I did, Dave, but Billy Sharp's done it the right way. He's gone to, he's gone from the bottom <laughs> to the top. I've gone from the top to the bottom. <laughs> so, you know, I'd, my, it was almost like the tables turned and I missed out. Um, Sunderland in the Championship, Leeds in the Premier League, and then Carl Island Div 2. We got promoted and um, I left for Hull City where they assigned me. So I didn't actually get the Division 1. I think if I had to play this season there, I might have got one or two. So it's an inc- incredible achievement for what Billy's done because of the way that he has done it and gone from the lower divisions and done it in the Premier League. And I think Alan Shearer gave him a great tweet on social media saying, congratulations, Billy. So that was that was huge. Yeah, so he's only scored, the only people that have scored over 200 goals since the turn of the century are him, Ricky Lambert and Wayne Rooney. So I, I was blown away by that. But what about the role of a talisman? I mean, you guys must have played with some guys who almost, you know, own the dressing room or just bring that real feel Um to the club, which this guy does. The fans absolutely love him. And, and what a difference that makes to the entire environment. I played with someone called Steve Claridge. A lot of uh, people might remember. He was a character. Was that he was the scruffy sure. guy? He was scruffy. He <laughs> played at Leicester. Uh, he won the, the Carling Cup uh, with Leicester. And, um, and I played with him at Portsmouth. He was sort of a legend of Portsmouth because he, he grew up in Portsmouth. Never played for him in the, at the top level until he came back there. And what a hard worker. He used to have one sock up, the other one down. He used to like hobble along. But a a really good player and also the fans actually, he lifted the fans when he played because they just loved watching him. And uh, for me that I played next to him up top, he was great because he could hold on to the ball and bring others into play. 
Do you think players having their socks down is the universal sign of hard graft? Because I, I feel like as a fan, I'll take to a player with their socks down far more than one over their knees. What do you Bridget? think, Bridget? No, I'm not having that because there was an unbelievable player called Varon that played for Man United. He wore the socks halfway down his shins. He did not work his <laughs> arse one bit, but when he got the ball, he was amazing. So that theory just goes <laughs> out the window there, Rich. Okay, no worries. Sorry. Jack Grealish, have his socks down? He, uh, no, no, he well, just lies down. Just lies. Yeah, he lies. <laughs> well, he might ruin the theory too. <laughs> well, that's just lots to look forward to on the weekend, as ever, on Optus Sport. And uh, good luck sleeping. And if you want to sleep, you've got mini matches, highlights, replays, and all the box and dice to enjoy uh, this weekend, as ever. But there's... Also action across the continent this weekend, which we'll be keeping a close eye on because it's the countdown to the Champions League then. And so many of these teams, so interested to see how they start the season. So as we look at that, would you rather, if you were in Spain, Rich, would you rather Barcelona, Real Madrid or Atletico Madrid as your team this season? Uh, I would say Atletico Madrid because I've put money on them in odds. So To win uh, the league. To win the league, yeah. Uh, I, I think Barcelona are almost too obvious. You know, it's pretty rare in the top five leagues that teams go back-to-back, and we've seen the five teams in the top five back it up, and there's no chance that they can all do it again. Someone will slip, whether that's a, a Barcelona or a Juve or a City, someone will, and you just sense, Johnny, that... Atletico Madrid have strengthened a couple of years in a row now, and they haven't necessarily got the rewards for it. But we know how much of a, you know, uh, how, how much fight Simeone's got, and, and sooner or later they're going to get it right. Yeah, I look. I actually really like the way that they've gone about their business in the off season. Jao Felix from Portugal, what a player, what a talent! In preseason, he's been scoring goals for fun. They've been beating teams easily and good teams. You know, everyone talks about the game that they played Real Madrid and won seven three. We know they're going to be super fit under Simeone. They're going to be organised, but they've also got now the players that can actually hurt teams. They've lost Griezmann. But they've also strengthened, and, and Diego Costa has already looked strong in preseason. Defensively, we know they're going to be well organised. The Spanish league is going to be exciting this year, except Real Madrid. I think they've got no chance of winning it. Well, just think of Barca, what they've gone and done. So, what we've got Griezmann, Suarez, Messi, Dembele, and potentially Neymar coming in. Frightening. How do you fit them all in the side? And, uh, and, you've, and you've got to, John, we've and, got to put them somewhere. And what would be the defensive midfield? Uh, no one's spoken about De Jong. What a signing he is. He's incredible. They, they, they talk about the way he's stepped foot in that club. We talk about Harry Maguire, how Harry Maguire's been around for a long period already, whereas De Jong is still young, and they, they say that he's set foot on that training ground and demanding from his teammates better and more. And you go, well, he's demanding from Busquets. Messi not yet because he hasn't <laughs> trained yet. <laughs> you feel like Barcelona's a club that you need to wait to the end of the window because Neymar could still end up there. They might have to offload two or three players and a heap of cash for that. That'll upset the apple cart. But yeah. it seems like at both Real Madrid and Barcelona, there are enough question marks around key players and key positions that Atletico could just sneak into the reckoning. Yeah, and no one's talking about Sevilla, who they've uh, also they've got Monchi, their football director, back from Italy. He uh, always signs exciting plays that no one really speaks about. They've had a good preseason under Lopetegui, who was the Spanish national team coach. Uh, Valencia will be strong again. I think this season probably you'll see at least four or five sides competing, which you haven't had that in the past few seasons. Barcelona have been too strong in the past few seasons, and uh, Atletico Madrid will definitely be out there. By the second of next month, when the transfer window ends, is Neymar in France or is he in Spain? Spain. In Spain. Spain. Four? 
I think Barcelona, I think the Messi factor could make the difference. I think that uh, Messi has uh, said or they've said in the papers in Spain that he called Neymar personally and said, come back. And I think that Neymar will want to go back to Barcelona because he knows uh, his teammates well, because potentially he feels that he can win there. I think with Real Madrid, I don't think they can win. I actually don't. Th- I think they're too, uh, actually, one paced in midfield. I think at the back they're struggling. They're conceding a lot of goals. Zidane's changing his formation during games in preseason because he's still unsure of the way he wants to play with that side. And and I think with Barcelona, they know the way they want to play. They're not going to change too much. The only thing they might change is their midfield and and see if they can put. De Jong and Busquets in the same midfield and, and maybe put Griezmann as a number 10 if Neymar does come. So Suarez misses out, I suppose? Like, what a, what a selection. No, I, I, well, it's easy to say. I, I think that Suarez will still start as a number 9 and you'll have Neymar on the left, uh, Messi on the right, Griezmann as a 10. Dembele will be the one that will miss out. And that, Coutinho as well. Coutinho will be gone. I think that's the way that they will make the transfer happen. I think Coutinho will go to... PSG and Neymar will go the other way. That is fantasy football. Bridgie, Bayern Munich or Borussia Dortmund? Taken Bayern Munich all day long. They've lost a couple of players. Ribery and Robin retired. Hummels as well. But they've just got Pulis- um, Perisic in. I think that's a fantastic signing. And I feel the way they won the league last season and how they, they, they hunted Dortmund down and Dortmund had that end of season capitulation. I think they've got the upper hand and they just seem to find a way. Bayern Munich have this in their DNA and I can't see anybody stopping them this season. Yeah, I think you're right. They do find the way. I still think that uh, losing those players it will make a, definitely an impact. Uh, Lewandowski did uh, come out and say, we need to sign some bigger players and, and, and players that can actually take us to the next level. Bayern Munich aren't willing to spend the money that the rest of Europe are spending. And when we talk about the rest of Europe, we're talking about your cities, your Manchester Uniteds and your Barcelona's, Real Madrid's. I think Dortmund have what it takes to take Bayern Munich all the way. Let's see if they can go all the way and win it. Interesting stuff. We'll touch on Syria next week because that starts the week after. They're having a lovely rest and all the all their players are recovering from off-season tournaments. But we see the start of La Liga and the Bundesliga this weekend. We're going to end up off with... Johnny, a question for you, a reaction to the result that come through in the local scene uh, last week. We saw the under-18s, the young Socceroos, lose 3-0 to Malaysia. Um, that's one month after the under-15s lost 3-0 to Malaysia. Your reaction to that? Yeah, look, it's uh, disappointing. I-, I can't remember any... Uh, level of uh, Australian football losing to Malaysia. Now, no disrespect to Malaysia, but that just goes to show how much they've improved and how much that we've actually stood still or gone backwards. Now, Brad Maloney, uh, the coach of uh, the Malaysian under-15 side and under-18 side, did say that um, when he's uh, playing against Australia, he knew what they were going to do because of the curriculum. Now, that's a worry. Now, the curriculum is there for a reason. The curriculum is there, yes, to teach players at a younger level through our academies to actually develop players, but you also have to be able to adapt your style with the players that you do have. Now, if he's able to actually outsmart our coaches at under-15 and under-18 levels, we've got a problem. And Brad Maloney's Australian, a Marconi uh, player that played a um Old National League, also coached at Marconi, and he knows the Australian game back to front. And that's probably why he's allowed to change his philosophy or his vision and his formation to play against the likes of the the, the younger uh, Australian teams. 
are the coaches that are coaching through the whole the FFA curriculum, are they allowed to do that? Have they got to stick to this formation, the 4-3-3? And that's why Brad had the upper hand from, yeah. from the get-go. Look, Bridget, there's nothing wrong with having a philosophy and a way of playing. We, we, we see Guardiola. Guardiola doesn't change the way he plays, but Guardiola will tinker depending on who he comes up against Correct. In, in actually, all right, we know they're going to press us like this. They're going to go man-on-man at the back because they're pressing us so high. Let's miss a couple of lines. Let's go direct. Whereas in the curriculum, it's told play out at all costs. It's it's the way that the coaches have sort of been brought up and the players are being brought up. So now their decision-making isn't there out on the pitch. Their decision-making should be where's the space? Where are we outnumbering players? Where are we actually uh, creating overloads? That, that's what it should be. It shouldn't be it's this way or no way. It's like where's the overload? But I believe the art of defending is going from the juniors and the academies as well. Because everything is the emphasis is playing out. Can you play? It's all about technique touches. Some of the defend defenders at the younger ages need to understand what it is to get you your understanding of the art of defending again. What did the um, the majority of the Manchester United supporters and you heard them cheer when Harry Maguire won a header? Boom. He was there defending first. And and everyone knows that Harry Maguire can still play football. So you're right. It's first as a defender, your main job is defend. And then after, you can play. And and the majority of the, the complete defenders nowadays can play and they have to be able to play out. It's also a really interesting insight into the, the shifting kind of tectonic plates underneath uh, Asia at the moment in terms of football because those nations such as your Malaysia's, Vietnam, Thailand, they are putting a lot of money or, you know, percentage of money that they might put towards sport, towards football, which we don't do. Fine, that's a different argument. But those nations are all going to become only stronger from here. So if we're struggling with them now at those ages, it doesn't matter what age it is, they're going to put so much more money into it and we're going to find it harder to qualify for major tournaments, whether they're at senior level or at junior level, and that situation is only going to get worse. Mm. Yeah, and and I don't think it's just the, the government of Thailand or Malaysia putting the money in. I think it's their local clubs that put money in. And, and where you're going to actually produce plays is producing them through your academy. Now, to do that, you have to have top coaches. Now, you have to have coaches that understand how to coach uh, younger players. And I think that we are falling behind in that aspect. Well, you go around the world and you see academies. And not only we're talking about England, Spain, those places. You're talking about in Asia. They, they, they've been producing players in there for a number of years. You look at the Japanese with Kubo that's uh, at Real Madrid. He's a young talented player that they brought through and then they've had a pathway for him to go to Spain. Where's our pathway for players? Our academy's still developing, but we're so far off, it's not funny. Well, we're going to, there's a talking point for over and over again in Australian football, and we'll touch on it at various stages through the season. But with the eye on the Under 20 World Cup in 2021, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. There's still a game against Thailand to come for the group, but they've beaten Cambodia and Vietnam. But the result that did stand out was that loss to Malaysia. Johnny, Bridget, great to hear your thoughts on those, as always. Rich, thanks for joining us again. It's been a, a great, a long morning, but a great morning of football action. And to everyone else out there as well, there's so much to tuck into, as I said. And uh, the other results and fixtures to run through, of course, is by the time you get to Sunday morning, you've got got uh, Chelsea playing Leicester in the wee hours at 1.30 and then that Wolves Manchester United game at 5am on Tuesday how good is that football all the way through so everyone out there enjoy that as always and until your next Gagan podcast enjoy your football ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 